Okay. Uh, hello, everybody. This is Jane Douglas Keene. I am here with Beverly Lee and Steph Ellis. Um, and today we are talking to uh, Tim Wagner, um, author of about a million books, including Writing in the Dark and now writing the Writing in the Dark workbook. Uh, remind me when that is coming out, Tim. Uh, about a week. About so, a week. I think the 26th. Okay. Okay. Um, and uh, one hell of a teacher, which is uh, one of the major reasons we have him here today. Um, this is going to be a good episode. Uh, Tim, tell us a little bit about yourself for those uh, newcomers. Oh, I have written considerably fewer than a million books. I've written about 50, about half original, half media tie-in. Uh, usually dark fantasy and horror is what I write. Um I published seven short story collection, won three Bram Stoker awards, and I've been teaching for 30 years, the last 23 or so at Sinclair College in Dayton, Ohio, teach composition and creative writing. Um, yeah, and I've uh, I've referred to your teaching quite a bit over the years since I started uh, reviewing and reading and essentially, I mean, not reading, I've been reading since I was 11, um, horror anyway, but... Um, I have, uh, yeah, ever since I decided to be an opinionated asshole, I use your words a lot as verification for what I'm telling people, so. <laughs> well, I'm glad to help you be an opinionated asshole, so. <laughs> so, um, give us a little bit of history on the Writing in the Dark project. Call yeah, well, long time ago, probably my late, uh, late teens, early 20s. Um, I'd started thinking about how cool it would be to do a book on writing. I just became fascinated with writing about writing. Um, for years, I'd been reading uh, Writer's Digest and the, the mystery writer Lawrence Block had a really good column on fiction writing in there. And that was my favorite thing to read in the, mm -hmm. in the magazine. And then, you know, he had a couple books on writing. So I read those and that led to others. And, you know, back then there was no Internet to find things. So you kind of had to wander in the bookstore mm -hmm. and see what was there and, you might read in an interview, somebody say, oh, I really like this book. So as years went by, you know, I read more and collected more. Always found the ones written by actual writers to be better than the ones of, by people who never wrote and just happened to write out a write book. Yeah, um, yeah so that's well. Doing um, like a blog, uh, I forget how long ago, about 10 years ago, um, Jason at Apex uh, just suggested to me I write about writing since that's what I teach. And so those things, you know, I'd already done some articles on writing, but those things kind of added up over time. And I kept thinking, you know, am I ever going to get to a point where I feel comfortable enough with writing a how to write book? Because it's like, you know, I don't feel like I'm some big expert or anything. But eventually it just it was something I wanted to do and it seemed like the right time. And then when I sat down to write it, it came together super fast. I was really surprised. And then when I was done, I forgot everything that was in it for two months. I literally <laughs> not remember anything I put in that book. So the first few, you know, interviews that I did about it, I'm just like hoping I can remember something about the book. But it came trickling back eventually. And, you know, it's done pretty well. People seem to like it. You know, I just was at StokerCon. A lot of people came up and told me, you know, they found it really useful, which is the most important thing for me. Um, yeah, super important, I would think, um, for all of us, really. Uh as, uh, as far as Writer's Digest go, I may have mentioned this before, I have every single one of those issues with Lawrence's uh, 
uh, articles in them. I read those things over and over and over again. So I'm, I'm with you there. Um, I think uh, one of the things that's so fascinating about writing in the dark was the structure of the thing. I think that's the thing I've heard over and over and over again is people, oh, this is great because you get um, Tim's insights and Tim's experience and his chapter, and then at the end of the chapter, you get your, you know, your voices. Um, and uh, you repeat that again to some degree in, um, the, in the workbook. Right. Right. Uh, I love that. I think that's a, that's a beautiful way to go with a writing book, you know, um, that I, the knowledge that every single writer is going to have a different piece of advice for the same exact topic, you know. Um, that, that was one of my favorite bits as well, yeah. the, the voices yeah. from the shadows. Yeah, it's a huge thing in creative writing education. If you're not mm -hmm. careful, people kind of attach to one teacher and that's the only thing they want to follow. And it's, it's mm -hmm. really important to take in as much as you possibly can and then, you know, find your own way through that. Yeah. Um, there's some, um, yeah, it's, I think so. I agree because there's, uh, and we've talked about this before too, uh, but um, that everybody has a different approach. Everybody has a different approach to learning. Everybody has a different approach to doing um and what works for me as far as your advice goes might be entirely different for somebody else you know and like those three voices from the dark pieces in a particular chapter one of those i might go oh you know ding idea you know um and the other two might not resonate with me but will resonate hugely with somebody else uh and i have no idea then they might inspire you in a different way too. You yeah. Can read like the entire book and say, this is a piece of shit and decide to do things differently, but it still worked because it, exactly. helped, it helped you find your way. Exactly. Um, I feel like I'm dominating this here. You guys. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd like to ask with all the advice, uh, excuse me, with all the advice that you give, is there one bit that you would give above all others? If, that, if you had to give one piece of advice, what would be the one thing? It's a really good question. I mean, I, I, I kind of go back and forth between two of them. If I had to just pick one, though, it would be to write with an immersive point of view, because horror is all about characters experiencing fear on some level. And the only way to do that is to get inside them. You can't show that from the outside. And it's a lot of people, all of us, really even starting in my generation and younger. I mean, we, we watch so much more uh, TV and movies than we do read. Even if we read a ton, mostly we absorb more information, more story through visual means. And that's always from the outside. And that's how people learn to write. They learn to write as if they're a passive observer watching something because that's what they do when they watch TV and movies. And so being able to write like to inhabit a character's mind and be able to, to create their experience for the reader that way i think is the single most important thing flipping it round a little bit is there a piece of advice that you gave out long ago or you used to give out that you would now not give out is there anything that's changed as you've gone along have you tended to just sort of develop as you've gone on well that's that's a really great story i mean the, what leaps to mind is the uh the uh, self-publishing versus traditional publishing because it was very different 
you know, when I was 18 or 19, that was like the absolute worst thing we could do was self-publish. Uh, and, and that kind of stigma was there for a, a decade or more after that. And now it's become a completely viable way, you know, to publish. It's 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 just another way. People don't look at it overall. They don't look at it as a negative. So that's really changed a lot. And plus the other avenues that are available too. There's all kinds of ways people can get their work to readers or to listeners. And I, I think that's wonderful. Yeah, I think the vast majority of people who've read my poetry have read it on Twitter. So there's all kinds of different ways. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's it's wonderful. I mean, the more venues there are, the better, the more voices mm-hmm. you get out there. I agree. Feedback you get from people. I know a lot of people have been using your workbooks and they followed your blogs and your videos. And how much feedback do you get from people about how useful they found it? And have you heard any specific feedback saying, "Oh, I wrote this because of this exercise and it's now being published in such and such a market"? Do you get any of that? And how do you feel about that when you do hear it? Yeah, I get a little bit. Sometimes people will email me, or a number of people StokerCon stopped me and said. You know, my I, since reading the book, you know, I've had two or three stories accepted. And, yeah, it makes me feel really good if I can help decrease the learning curve for anybody. I mean, that's the, the whole reason to do it. You know, writing a book about it, it, it's it's great to set down your own thoughts and process, you know, your own thoughts on what you value and what you think works in writing. But if it doesn't help somebody else in the end, it's useless. It's meaningless. Yeah, there's, there's so much really useful fabulous information in, in the book, Tim. So instead of going through it, I just opened it at a random page and it was chapter 10. Uh, and the first thing I saw were the lines, horror is an emotion, horror stories are reaction stories, and horror stories aren't about monsters, they're about people. And that just encapsulates everything about horror writing for me. Yeah, a lot of times I'll tell people, imagine a monster standing out in the field and then there's no people to interact with it. Mm. You can't have a horror story, but you could have a story about somebody who thinks there's a monster there, even if it isn't, and they react to it. You have to have people. I mean, all stories, even if the people in a story are like, it's a rabbit, you know, you're telling it from the rabbit's point of view. I mean, it's still a person because it's sentient. So, yeah, I mean, they're about the people. And I think a lot of the beginning horror stories I'll see, like in a class or a workshop, everybody focuses on everything except for the character. Because mm-hmm. they're having so much fun writing about the monster and writing all yeah. these weird details and gross details. Uh, they just forget. Yeah, and the, the thing about the monster is that it's more scary when you don't know what it looks like. Right. I mean, and really, you could just have like a cardboard cutout that was blank with an M on it for monster. I mean, it doesn't really... Yeah. To change the things and it stimulates my imagination if there's a really cool take on a monster I've never seen before. But in terms of the way the story plays out, I mean, it's the person that's more important. The monster's mm. often just a placeholder. What's, what's the worst stereotype then that you? What's the what's the stereotype that you would consider the worst in horror? The, the stereotype of people that they they can act very quickly in response to being confronted with something awful. Uh, A lot of people freeze, and you never know exactly how you would react, so you don't know how any one individual would. You know, if if the stories are about regular people, they're not trained to deal with these kind of situations. Um, They've probably never been so terrified and had to react before. And so stories where people immediately run 
and manage to somehow escape this otherworldly or super powerful force, or stories where they're able to quickly grab something off a shelf and whack it on the head and run out. Um, those things kind of striving, they're fun to keep things going and to kind of establish this character probably won't die immediately, that they've got what it takes to at least, you know, make it hopefully to the end of the movie. Uh, but I find that to be a cliche because there's so many different ways that people can respond. I think they could learn throughout the course of a story, uh, mm -hmm. maybe start to adjust frantically if they need to. But that first, those first few interactions, I find a lot of times to be unbelievable. Yeah, that reminds me of, I don't know, it's years ago now, but we parked our car in the city in this little road and it was dark. And my husband, was, he unlocked my side of the car. So I was getting in and he was walking around. And I got in and sat down and I looked across and there was this bloke sat in the driver's seat. And I thought, you're not supposed to be there. And it took me a while to react to him being there. And then my husband opened the door and he got out and said, sorry, he'd put in the wrong car with a big bunch of keys and things. He was, he was drunk and he was trying it on. But my response was, well, he should be there. So it's not really that I just sat there. <laughs> it was really strange. <laughs> yeah, if that was in a film, there would have been screaming and all sorts. But because it wasn't expected, it was just, oh, what do I do? Yeah, right. Yeah, and the screaming makes sense in a film because you get the audience all all wound up. Yeah. But in real life, you know, the, the last scary thing that happened to me was my car was rear-ended on a highway. Really bad, but, and I was lucky to escape injury. But I remember looking up. This, I had been trying to get away from this driver because they were driving erratically, probably checking texts on their phone or whatever. And as it come, came flying up behind me, I'm like, he's not going to stop. I'm going to get hit. And there was no panic. There was nothing. Until after, of course, you know, I spun around the highway a few times, landed in a ditch, and just sat there going, okay, I'm alive. I think I'm all right. And then, you know, all the things hit me. Yeah. And so I think the more that people can pay attention to how they react to things, and also like family and friends mm -hmm. uh, that they've seen, I think the more realistically they can portray that, which is a real challenge because, you know, so many of our stories are like, oh, here's the first time somebody <laughs> interacts with something that's scary or weird. I got to find a different way to describe it. Uh, right. Like it's like a, like a different way to describe darkness. How, how many times do we have to worry about that? <laughs> You know, in a horror story. You know, and that's kind of the, the if you put that in a group dynamic, um, when I was about 16 years old, someone broke into my aunt's house while I was watching her kids. Um, and she had just come home and she was home and every single one of us, there were five of us in the house, three kids and her and I, um, everybody reacted differently. Everybody had a different response to this person. My my aunt froze um, and didn't even say anything. You know, my cousin ran and came and found me and told me um, I wanted to run because I was freaking terrified. But the guy had my aunt, so I just did what fear makes you do and acted. You know, some some people do that. Um, but yeah, it was a really a much more realistic dynamic you know, to show people not knowing what the fuck to do when something like that happens, because we don't, you know. Right. What would you like to see more of in horror than you sort of, in a way, all that is what you want to see less of, less of the stereotypical, more immersive, but what would you actually like to see more of in terms of what comes out in people's literature? Yeah, maybe more drawn from their personal experience. I mean, you don't have to tell people it's drawn from your experience or how it's drawn. 
because it could be very disguised or transformed by the time it comes out. But, you know, our experiences, we're the only ones that have them or at least have the perceptions of them that we do. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times people are trying to replicate stories that they've seen. I think people do that all the time anyway. But they're like, okay, this is a vampire story. And it's like, okay, did you ever interact with a vampire? Did you ever interact with something kind of vampirish? And then maybe somebody writes about, um, you know, a relationship where somebody tried to, to dominate them somehow. Maybe not even a terrible way, but just always tried to get them to do the thing they wanted to do. And you could build a really interesting horror story out of something like that. I don't know if you're going to build a really interesting one out of a vampire unless you're, it's just a fun idea story, maybe a humorous story. So more more things drawn from people's own own perceptions, especially the weird, strange things that they that they might see, you know, out in the world, whatever it might be. Strangest thing you've seen then? Oh Lord, um, strangest thing I saw. I was how old was I? I don't know. Uh, probably preteen. Was lying in bed one night and I heard a sound that sounded like kind of like cicadas but also kind of like a rattling and there were these two glowing eyes at the foot of my bed and they swayed as they kept coming up toward me and i was too terrified to move and finally i was able to force myself to turn on the, the light on my night on my headboard and there was nothing there and the sound cut out and so it was so realistic you know i don't know if it was a dream or what it was just a few months ago, I looked up to see if that was a thing that anybody had written about, like an urban legend. I did find a few places like that. So it, because it was so real, and uh, uh, that's probably the weirdest thing I ever saw. I turned it into a tiny little story a long time ago called Night Eyes, and all I did was describe what really happened, and then I added on a weird twist ending. It was like 750 words. <laughs> I've noticed that you, you write that, you know, make a note of everything you see, you sort of, every odd thing you see you make a note of, and that you live in your head a lot, in, in your imagination. Does that ever cause any conflict in real life, you know, because you might be imagining one thing and playing something out in your head, and then you might might say something and be in a, you know, it'll land you in trouble or make people laugh or, or something, you know, it's just in the wrong place at the wrong time when you're thinking these things. Usually if somebody asks me a question and I have no idea what in the world's going on, so then I have to either, you know, apologize or pretend like I know or guess and hope I guess right. Uh, my wife's an artist, too. So, I mean, she's a visual artist, but, you know, she understands that way. And she lives in her head, too, a lot. So it, it annoys her a little bit, but she does the same thing to me. So it'll annoy me a little bit. But basically, we understand. But usually, I, you know, I do OK with that. I've just been going back and forth between those worlds all my life, so I'm pretty used to it. I don't do okay with that. My my uh, sister, I think it was, I don't remember now, called it Walter Mitty syndrome. Because <laughs> <laughs> I would frequently respond to things that she didn't actually say to me. <laughs> but, That's funny. So, I um, like that, but it's only to things I'm about to say and then decide I don't want to. <laughs> For some reason, she seems to hear my voice at those moments. Her theory is that I just like taking a breath and then stop or something, and she recognizes it. But I'd rather think she's psychic; it's more fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's. So, there. so, for anybody thinking about picking up uh, writing in the dark and and, and the workbook, um, it's not just for beginner writers, is it? It's just for anybody that writes 
dark fantasy, horror, any kind of dark fiction. I think even if you've been in this game 10, 20 years, you could still read it and pick up some nuggets of wisdom from it. Yeah, that's what I tried to do. And people have told me that it works that way for them. So, you know, I'm glad to hear it. Um, yeah, I mean, I was just, that's a lot of what I have to do as a teacher anyway, because you never know what kind of group you're going to get, especially if you're doing a workshop like at a convention or something. You just don't know what level people are at. And so you try to, best you can, make it for everybody, or at mm -hmm. least that everybody will get something out of it, even if you can't tailor make it to each individual. Um, sorry, I totally lost my train of thought there. Uh, I was just, oh, I was just going to say, and you, you find that with, with each individual student anyway, huh, that they're all different and they all have, they all are going to take something different away from you anyway. Right. Um, and as we've mentioned, um, but, uh, yeah, everybody's going to respond, you know, like with, with me, I've tried step-by-step and step how to books and I can't, I need a book that I can jump around in because I have neurodivergences that cause me to do so anyway with nonfiction books. So, um, I think that's like the perfectly designed book for just all of us, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I had that issue with nonfiction books too. They, they, they strike me as kind of flat. They strike me as like, they don't build in mm -hmm. any way. They just kind of keep marching through. So yeah, I'm more likely to read, unless it's a history or something, I'm more likely to read bits and pieces of it, kind of just whatever grabs my attention any time, which I won't do with a piece of fiction. Mm -hmm. No, I would feel like I was uh, disrespecting the author doing that with a piece of fiction, not to mention confusing the hell out of myself. <laughs> um, sorry, we have to have our uh, our uh, awkward silence. Okay, well, oh, that's a question. We were talking just before we started that I've been watching your little videos on YouTube and I, I've listed them all and I put down the views each one got. And the one that I found was most watched was your My Top Six Tips on Writing Extreme Horror. That sort of doubled your, your viewing on that one. What is it, do you think, about extreme horror that really pulled people towards you at that point? Um, you know, honestly, it could be something as easy as the word extreme in there where people are curious. Uh, but I also think that that a lot of people wonder if you can write extreme horror and still have it be, you know, a story with in the sense that there's a character and the character is important and the character goes through something beyond just physical pain or psychological torture or something. You know, can you make it, um, you know, legitimate piece of art if you're if you're doing yeah. you know, extreme horror? Um, and of course, I think you can. You can make legitimate art out of anything. But I think it's, you know, a lot easier to get caught up in, you know, all the blood and guts and the the, um, the sort of clinical description of, of injuries and things like that. Um, so I, I think that you need to it's, it's not that you should avoid it or there's anything intrinsically wrong with it. But I think it's like it's like extreme sports. You need certain skills to, you know, to be able to do it as opposed to maybe a regular sport, which, yeah, you need skills, but they might be different even if they overlap sometimes. Yeah, I was, I was, when I was watching that and you were describing, you know, getting into the person as maybe they were cutting off their hand. And as you were talking about it all the time, I was really cringing because I was visualising it at the same time. But as soon as the hand was off, I was okay. 
but it's all that what you talk about you know can they do it and I was just thinking oh could I, I oh I can't watch slash movies or anything like that just having someone describe it like you were that was that was bad enough for me I don't know about the other two no, yeah, think... that's, that's... Oh, go ahead Shane no, no. I, I was just going to say, do you think there are some, I mean, some some uh, instances, like I, I'm thinking of uh, Ketchum's Girl Next Door, uh, JF, even more so JF Gonzalez's Survivor, um, where in a, in a way the art kind of uh, takes the power position over the extremity of the story itself. Um, do you yeah. find that? Yeah, I do. And uh, The Girl Next Door was something I was afraid to read for like 20 years or so. And I finally, when uh, when Dallas passed, I decided to catch up on all the books as I hadn't read. And I read that one and I was like, oh, it's not as bad as it would have hit me much differently, you know, in my 20s than now after all the stuff I've read and written. Um, but it was still hard hitting. And of course, you know, I knew the kind of story he was trying to tell and the kind of themes he was trying to work through mm-hmm. so, yeah i mean there's nothing wrong with reading a story or writing a story just for the fun of it but i think that if you can write it on multiple levels mm-hmm. i think it becomes something more impactful and has more it's more memorable um you know in the, the um, you know stuff you were talking about the the cutting of the hand that's one of the secrets to writing this kind of violence if you do it fast everybody's okay but if you do it slow you make everybody just squirm and squirm so you know, in, in the story, you kind of pick and choose your moments about. And it's the same with, like, the building of suspense. You know, you can either have the monster jump out or you can build and build and build, just depending on what kind of effect you want to want right. to. You kind of want to avoid uh, uh, spaghetti western fistfights, you know, so to, so to speak. Uh, I think it was Laird Barron who said, if you're writing real violence, it's going to happen real fast, you know. And it's a pretty good, pretty good guideline, I think. Yeah, I've never been in uh, too many violent situations, but I've had friends yeah. that grew up rough, and that's mm-hmm. what they would tell me. You know, we might be at a bar, and you see somebody fighting, goes, you see those people? They're talking. They're not going to fight. If they were going to fight, you'd see it immediately. That's right. <laughs> and it would be over so fast, too. And it doesn't. It still traumatizes everybody. I mean, the mm-hmm. victim of violence is everyone that's around yep. violence. Yep. Maybe not as bad as the poor person that's getting hurt, but I mean, exactly. there's no respect on everybody. And I think it's really important to to remember, too. A lot of times in horror stories, especially movies, you know, people, something would happen that should traumatize them on some level. They just, they're scared, but then they just keep going. I always talk about the Night of the Living Dead. Now, Barbara the starts off as one of the main characters, and then she soon becomes catatonic and just kind of sits there the rest of the movie. Yeah. Until finally, you know, about two thirds of the way through, she's just gone out yeah. of the movie. And that's perfect because that's the sort of thing that would happen to people. At least to some people. Mm-hmm. Probably me. Dead people start getting up and eating living people. I'm probably just going to sit there and die. <laughs> <laughs> well, at this point, so many of us would probably think it was a joke because we've seen so many zombies before. Right. Probably, yeah, we wouldn't believe it was really happening until it was too late. <laughs> I'm reminded of a Brian Keene story. I think it was uh, Fast Zombies Suck. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I won't. I won't say anything about that. It's too short. It's too easy to spoil the hell out of that. If you haven't read it, you'll know what I'm talking about, guys. <laughs> have you got a favorite type of horror to write yourself, Tim? 
I like to write kind of weird, surreal horror stuff that's kind of like a nightmare that is where, like, maybe somebody's internal psychological state is mirrored, you know, in the, the outer world. Um, a lot of times it's more dark fantasy in a lot of ways because those two elements are combined. Yeah. Uh, in my early 20s, I was thinking, you know, I'm reading horror stories and I'm like, if you use the supernatural, there's all kinds of stuff you could do. And I would read a fantasy. I'm like, well, everything is just okay and nice, but magic can be really scary and dark. Why can't somebody fuse these things? And then I read Clive Barker and said, oh. They can. <laughs> and uh, Neil Gaiman, too. And so just eventually along, I tried to find my way of coming up with a, you know, a horror story that was just mine, that would be like anybody else's. And eventually that's the kind of thing that started coming out. So it's still my favorite kind to write. There was the one where you said, should horror be scary? And you used the phrase, a nightmarish distortion of reality. So do you think you can write horror without violence and without the scares and still have a really good horror tale from that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, people, people might classify it as, as weird fiction more than horror because it's because of the name horror. I mean, it's it seems so big and so such a strong reaction. But, yeah, I think you can, because uh, uh, the horror can happen on the part of the reader more than it does on the part of the characters, maybe. Um, Shirley Jackson's stories, in a lot of ways, are, uh, there may be actual violence in them, or it may be sort of implied to occur after the story. But, yeah, I don't know if anybody's going to read those things and, and, and jump. The, the kids in the hall back in their original series way back when, they had a skit called Boo, which is about a horror writer, and his first novel was called Boo, and the only word in it is Boo with an exclamation point. And when people read it, they jump, they gasp. And it becomes a huge hit, and then he has to do his follow-up, and he's blocked. Finally, he comes up with, hey, there's a spider on your back. And when people read it, they all brush. You know, and it's a satire on the idea that anybody would literally, you know, feel actual fear. You know, maybe what you feel is a certain kind of cousin to it. But a lot of times that's for people that are younger. You know, we kind of lose that as we go along. We get a nerd to it. So mm -hmm. I seek out other things in horror stories. But, yeah, I mean, what's scary to one person is, is not scary to, to mm -hmm. another. One of the most horrifying things I've ever seen in my life was the end to uh, being John Malkovich. Because, of the, yeah, because once you understand what's happening, what this poor bastard is going to have to observe, for maybe 20 years, powerless to do anything about it. And then what's going to happen after that? It's just awful, just awful. And it hits me a lot more than, uh, oh, look, uh, you know, Jason and Freddie aren't dead. And they're going to gonna come back again. <laughs> I love those things. They're fun, but they don't affect me like that movie did. Um, any more slashers or comedy flicks for me. I just yeah. I watch them because I love to see how they pull off the kills. <laughs> Yeah, my favorite is Jason versus Freddy because they're both supposed yeah. to be dead, but they shoot blood like 30 feet, like they've got yeah. incredible blood pressure. <laughs> yeah, had neither one of them walked more than like, you know, uh, 40, 40 feet per hour, you know, yeah. so uh, <laughs> it's not like real fast chase scenes or anything happening in there. Uh, I've always loved that, though, that uh, injection of... Um, supernatural sort of so to speak in the slasher i think hunter shea said it where they're uh where you know all the the victims of people running from the serial killers are running full bore you know to try to get away and the serial killers just 
strolling along, you know, but he always catches them anyway. Right, right. <laughs> so, just, I digress. <laughs> I think my favorite chase scene is in Hopneys versus Zombies, and it's where Richard Pryor is is on his Zimmer frame and he's trying to get in away from these zombies and they're running after him and it's just this old man with a Zimmer frame and the zombie just trundling along and it's really funny. I'm just throwing that in there. You should watch a couple of these zombies. <laughs> yeah, that's a great movie. I love that one. <laughs> that's the best. For a long time I used to have, I haven't had in a long time, but for years and years and years I used to have dreams once or twice a year where there, was, there were slow zombies and what was always terrifying to me about them is they just don't stop. Yeah. Uh, so you know you're going to get tired. You can't just keep keep running, and that will give them time to catch up. And then they 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 use that, and it follows pretty well, I thought. Uh, yeah. Where they stripped the zombie down to just that one element, and just didn't call it a zombie because it wasn't. Mm-hmm. But it had that relentless slow pursuit that was just, it, you know, it used to terrify me. But I don't know. I guess I got used to zombies. I haven't had those dreams in years. I forget what movie it was. Um, it had the guy from. One of the Lord of the Rings flicks, I think, or the Hobbit flicks. Um, it was a Australian zombie flick. He was being followed across the desert by a solo zombie. Um, it was horrifying. <laughs> For that very reason that, that, you know, no matter how fast you are, you're going to run out of breath and die eventually. That's <laughs> asleep. I think. What was that? Cargo. Yeah, yeah, that's oh, it. Oh, yes. That's I love that film. film. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know film. <laughs> yeah, and he had a baby with him, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah he did. <laughs> it was, yes, it was the guy from um, Lord of the Rings, wasn't it? Can't remember yeah. his name now. Yeah. <laughs> he also played uh, Watson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, but, Everybody that's listening to this is now screaming at us what the, what his name is. <laughs> his first name's Martin. I remember that, but I can never yep. remember his last. Is name. it is it Martin Freeman? Or am I thinking of someone else? Is that it? I think it's maybe. Uh, yeah. Some European guy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I've, I've got a couple of questions here from um, someone I've recently sort of got into contact with. Um, I'm going to probably kill her surname, Leslie Obey, or Obey. She's from Quebec in Canada. Anyway, she had a couple of questions. She's a, a writer sort of at the start of her career trying to get published and or just starting to get published. Uh, she's got a couple of questions. And the first one, she wants to know what your editing process is. Uh, I do an awful lot ahead of time because I hate editing. I hate revising. It seems like there are two types of writers, ones that get ones that get their energy from creating and one that get, ones that get their energy from revising. Mm-hmm. Um, the revision ones are always talking about how they hate getting doing a draft. But they love having one to shape. And I don't like that part. Uh, I've learned to you know, do it over the years. But one of the things I do is I spend a lot of time thinking about an idea, maybe writing an outline, visualizing, visualizing scenes and dialogue and things like that um, as I write it. You know, I may do even like shorter, little, tiny, simple little outlines about what's to come next. Uh, So by the time I get a draft done, it's usually pretty good. At least that's what editors tell me. They don't usually give me a whole lot uh, of of things to change. Uh, So that but I go back over it 
I sweep through it. I edit as I go too. You know, if, I, if I'm on page 120 and I realize something needs to be fixed on page 90, I just go back and fix it right then. I don't wait. I don't wait till later. Um, and then when I start writing for the day, I go back to the last few pages of what I did the day before and edit it. So I'm kind of like do, going in a sort of a circle that overlaps as I go through a document. Uh, I really have to pay attention to the last part because I usually write the last like third of a book really fast. It's like going down a hill on a roller coaster at that point. So I have to be a little careful about that and go back and look at it a little more carefully. So I try to try to edit as little as possible. <laughs> I try to do a lot of rewriting. It seems to work for me. Before I ask a second question, do you still, for many of us, when we're writing a novel, you can be about, I don't know, about a third of the way in. And then suddenly you think, oh, this is rubbish. What am I doing? And you find it very hard to get over that point and keep the enthusiasm going. And you have to sort of push through it a bit to get that. Do you still suffer from that? Or is it very much a smooth ride all the way through? Oh, no, I'm convinced everything I write is awful. <laughs> and once I start complaining about it, my wife's like, oh, that's when she knows it's fine. If I don't <laughs> complain, then she worries. Um, I just try not to listen to that point, uh, to that part of me. I try to remind myself that those voices lie, the ones that always tell us things, because it may be okay, it may be brilliant, but it's probably not the worst thing any human being's ever written. So I'm, I'm pretty yeah. sure it's not that bad. You know, so yeah, I just remind myself those voices lie, and I just keep writing it, and if the book's a failure, so what? I mean, I'm lucky in that I can write pretty fast, so if I wrote a book that was awful, I just throw it away and work on another one. But I haven't had to do that for years. That's what I see right then. Um, kind of depends. Right now I'm writing really slow and I'm not sure why. Um, but I can, I've written like the novelization I did for Halloween Kills. I think I wrote that in two weeks, maybe. Yeah, you wrote that fast. <laughs> well, well, it helped that I, you have a script. I mean, yeah. you, know, you have some stuff to follow, even though you have to add a bunch of stuff. And I, I'm going to brag, I also had COVID at the time, too. So that's what was, uh. it's was keeping me like sane was having something. that I wasn't terribly sick, but I was sick. Yeah. And, uh, so that okay. actually that links in with her second question a little bit. She says, "How do you balance your own writing for your own sort of novels with these times you do?" Um, usually it's not a problem. You know, I don't get too many tie-in, you know, offers in a row, and it kind of waxes and wanes. A lot of it's just dependent on when uh, uh, publishers manage to get a license to do. Uh, a novel like a novelization they just don't get them regularly sometimes or they may have to go out and if they do three alien novels then they might have to wait a year before they can get a license to do three more so they just kind of come and go my agent always tries to build in a couple extra months in my deadline so that if something should come up i could shift over to doing a tie-in and then get back to doing uh, my own stuff but so far so good um it hasn't uh, not too often has it gotten to a point where I have to either ask for an extension or just stop sleeping for a couple of weeks <laughs> while I try to get a book done. How did you get into times in the first place? Well, back when I was uh, way back when, when I was a kid, you know, there weren't any VCRs yet even. So if you saw a movie in the movie theater, it would be a year or two before it would show up on network TV and then it'd be heavy, heavily edited. Mm -hmm. And so novelizations were another, and you couldn't, I, mean, I couldn't convince my dad to go see a movie more than once. So I, the novelizations were a way of, of re-experiencing the movie. And it was so much fun because, you know, there'd be different things in there. They'd be able to get into the heads of the characters. They'd add stuff. Um, and then if there were like 
you know, characters that you enjoyed. Um, you might be able to read original adventures with them. And comic books are like that, too, because, yeah. you know, even though they keep going, you know, it's still the same thing. You get more adventures with your characters. And it just became interesting because you'd think about, like, on the playground you might play as being different superheroes. I remember trying to play Marvel comic once, and nobody knew who Iron Man was. And I'm like, everybody knows who Iron Man is now. All those right. Iron Man. So and it just became something that I thought was interesting. Um, you know, I started out in, in college as an acting major, and, and tie-ins are kind of like that. You know, it's like being a, an actor or a director where you have to shape your version of Hamlet. You know, not not that not that Michael Myers is Hamlet or anything, but you get to try out different things. And sometimes I've written things I wouldn't have think to write on my own. Like I've written a couple action adventure spy uh, books that were novelizations. Um, I get to write science fiction, which I normally wouldn't write, even though it's maybe part of horror on some level. And it just stretches me, stretches a different set of muscles. And sometimes it's nice because it's a different, it, it's like a break from the darkness of the other stuff I write. I mean, even if it's dark, it's still not dark like that. You know, I don't really go into any deep place in myself to pull things out. And so it's nice. It's almost like a little writing vacation in a way. But I also learn stuff from it, too, which is great. Do you have a perfect franchise, or are you not allowed to say <laughs> you have to keep sort of quiet so they don't annoy anybody? <laughs> no, no, I mean, uh, I got to do um, uh, uh, a story for Kolchak, the Night Stalker, who's a, a monster hunter from when I was a kid. They're putting out a 50th anniversary um, anthology of that, and it was also a comic story. So I got to, it was like two bucket list items. I always wanted to write a comic story, and I wanted to write a Kolchak story. So that was a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to seeing the art. The artist she posts like a, uh, sort of updates and progress reports on Twitter. So I mean on uh, Instagram, and so I get a chance to see what it's going to look like. And uh, and then I guess I have to go back and match my dialogue to what she actually drew. So it's a really cool kind of collaboration too. I like that. But, um, yeah, I don't I'd write any kind of franchise anybody wanted, really, um, as long as I could come up with something for it. At one point, a publisher asked if I'd be interested in doing a, a novel based on the, the Family Guy series. And I was like, what the hell would you write a novel? And then it, I think the project just died because I never heard about it again, ever. But I was like, what a challenge that would be. God, a huge challenge, right? Yeah. <laughs> Might be a fun challenge, though. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd try. I mean, I'd pitch some ideas if I could, but... Yeah. Some people are rem exceptionally good, though, with the with the tie-ins. Um, you're exceptionally good with them. You write good oh, tie-ins, not just cardboard cutouts. Uh, Alan Dean Foster comes to mind. Um, I grew up reading his tie-ins to yeah, yeah, a lot of stuff, both book franchises uh dungeons and dragons you know so many different things but yeah um it's fascinating and it makes it accessible at least when we were younger um pretty much all four of us uh makes like you know like i was a poor kid i grew up extre extremely poor um and those tie-ins i used to go down to the library and rent them by the bucket you know load you know um and that that those were my Sunday matinees, so to speak, you know, mm -hmm. so, yeah. Um, again, I'm just rambling here about that. There was a question, but I lost it. <laughs> I was saying, one of my questions was, how do you keep your enthusiasm going? But I think yeah. you've just sort of answered it in a way, haven't you, by having this variety in your work? 
Yeah, but it's, you know, I'm getting older. I'm 58 now, and it kind of waxes and wanes. Sometimes I like, maybe I should just retire. From, I've never said this to anybody but my wife. Some, I should just retire from writing novels and just write weird experimental short fiction the rest of my life <laughs> and uh, just have fun and not worry about the other stuff. It's not like writing novels are hard, but, you know, the there's a lot of ups and downs in a writing career. And after a while, you know, it's just kind of gets to you a little bit, I guess. But I'm just going to keep on plowing through. Hopefully it'll I kind of my will pass a little bit. I'm pretty sure it's more to do with the age I am than anything else to do with writing. <laughs> nice to hear your age, because I'm the same age. I've just turned 58 recently. And all you ever hear, well, all you ever hear, I think it's because I'm older and you see everybody else looks younger and you think, oh, it's always about younger writers. I think it is important to have older writers around and for other older writers to see them. Because I've only relatively recently started in a way, you know, several years, that's all. And I just keep telling people you're never too old to start, you know, because there's, there's a few that wrote for Horatory and they're sort of 70s, 80s, sending their stuff into me. And it's, it's really good to see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, you get such a different perspective on people that start later in life. Plus, your learning curve is like massively decreased because you just know how to learn. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even people that are in their 30s versus people in their late teens. Uh, I read somewhere that the amount you write, if you start young, the amount of writing you produce in your 20s, you will never equal the rest of your life. But it doesn't matter because the stuff you do in your 20s is awful. <laughs> you're just, you know, you're just you're learning as you go. But, you know, people that are in their 30s or more, I mean, you've learned so much about how to manage things in your life that in general, the learning curve is like really, really short for those people. So get started out there if you're older. It's, it's the life experience as well, isn't it, that, that older writers can, can bring to the game because they, they, they've been through the, the treadmill and had things thrown at them and come out the other side, hopefully. Yeah, and, and like younger writers, all they write about is, you know, we, we don't have any money, we hate our jobs, uh-huh. uh, we're smoking our cigarettes. I don't know why they're always smoking cigarettes. We're drinking some alcohol. You know, we're thinking about sex, we're not having sex. And sometimes that's the whole story. <laughs> There's nothing mm-hmm. else. And I'm like, I understand you're kind of they're kind of exploring what to them is like adult life at that point, but it's not a lot to build stories on. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. But with the depth of experience too comes a, a depth of complexity. I think you know some you know as far as building stories, um, at least you know it's kind of like they're finding like you say they're finding their way still. They're start still trying to figure out even what adulthood means really. So. Yeah, the only problem with people who are older is because they know so much, they they worry more. Mm-hmm. I just jump right into it and, and just try it. So right. I think more more doubts maybe, and especially mm-hmm. if they believe in a certain kind of you know like paradigm of what a writer is, and they feel mm-hmm. like they're not that. And you know you don't get any time back, so you know there's no mm-hmm. point in saying oh I wish I'd started in my twenties because it's too late. But you can start now. You can start. That's right. Now. Yeah, and, and I think you're you're sitting with three of us. I think that started post fifty, at least on a professional yeah. level. It just made me think about um, simultaneous submissions and things like that. And they say, oh, when you send something away, it might be someone says, oh, we don't do simultaneous submissions. You'll have to wait. I think that once you're over a certain age, you should be exempt from that because you haven't got as long to wait. <laughs> have a lot of time. <laughs> I was just thinking that the other day and I was thinking, oh, my God, I need to get things out now and just keep 
sending them out and ignoring all these sort of rules. Yeah. That keep no. It's it's like a it's like a wisdom discount. <laughs> I like that better than senior discount. That's good. Yeah. All the weed shops around here use wisdom discount. Right. I like that one. <laughs> yeah, I don't. You know, a lot of writers ignore those kind of rules, and those are all rules meant to to, to privilege the editor. And I understand that. But usually, if you have an editor who's also a writer, they're like, you know, blast it out there everywhere. And if I don't get it first, it's my loss. And so I think that if you know. I would do it if I was still submitting things because a lot of the time, especially with short stuff, it's it's stuff that, you know, like an anthology I've been invited to submit to. Um, but every once in a while, you know, I'll have a story and, you know, maybe I'll just send it out to one place at a time because I don't I got other things coming out and I don't care. But if I was just starting now to do short stories, I'd send them everywhere. And if somebody gets mad at me because it was a simultaneous submission, so what? Yeah. yeah. Stories are easier to cope with when you've got a novel. And they say, oh, you know, it could be about a year before you hear back. And then you think, well, that's another year of me on, well, I'm on the downward slope now. <laughs> so it's another year gone, closer to next door. But there we go. Um, so that does make it harder to, to submit to some of these places in the first place. Right. That's what's great about self-publishing, though, because we don't have to. Mm-hmm. You, know, you don't have to wait if you don't want to. Yeah, I'm doing some of that as well. <laughs> Hybrid, hybrid, I think, is the way to go for a lot yeah. of people. I think it's a way to go for everybody. I think everybody yeah. should try it yeah. and see what they like, see what works for them. I think you should try as much as you can to increase your odds of success. What about agents then? Because every now and then I'll have a go and sort of query a number, and then it's deafening silence, so I leave it for ages, and then you hear oh, we've got an agent now and we're achieving this, that and the other. Do you think there is still value in getting an agent or can you achieve as much on your own without it? Well, I think that there are a lot of places that you you, you can't get in the door without an agent. You know, in the, the 80s when everything, publishing started to consolidate in a lot of ways and you would have, and just keeps going, and you'd have one person doing the work or five or six at a publishers, they they rely on agents basically doing unpaid reading for them to screen out uh, work that, you know, that is just not for whatever reasons ready. And so, uh, yeah, there are lots of editors that will not look at anything that has been unagented. If you're just going to do small press, no, you don't need an agent. I mean, they may get you slightly better deals and help you avoid uh, some you know, onerous kind of contract clauses, but they might not take you on because if your advance is nothing, that's 15% of nothing. So they, you know, yeah. it's not working for them. Um, but the thing about having an agent too is it's not a magic bullet. I mean, over the years, you know, so people get so excited getting an agent. I'll see them on, on Twitter or Facebook. I got an agent. I'm thinking, oh, you poor thing. Because that agent still may not be able to sell anything of yours for reasons nobody knows or understands. There's no guarantee at all. And, uh, you know, people don't talk about it uh, when it it falls apart because it's, you know, depressing. And also it doesn't promote you really well. They also don't talk about that your agent looks at the contracts, but you do everything else. Uh, You're the one that has made the contacts with publishers at conventions and other things. Um, you know, some agents like mine, they look at it as a partnership. We both do everything that we can. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of writers who expect agents to take care of every single thing magically somehow, it just doesn't work that way. And so they often get very disillusioned. And nobody talks about this stuff. I mean, they will talk about it like at a bar at a convention, but they won't say much about it online. I think the more people share their experiences, the better. 
That was the great yeah. thing when, when message boards started showing up and then social media. I mean, there's a lot of power in saying, yes, this is the advance I got from this publisher. And they're like, oh, I didn't get that. Even though it says in the contract, you're not supposed to talk about your advances. Writers mm -hmm. do anyway, just not in public. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and people also don't talk about if they part company with their agents for one reason or another, because there's this stigma attached to it. Yeah. And it could be just that you're just not compatible. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's all kinds of reasons or the agent is stepping back or they're, you know, they're quitting or or, yeah, the agent took on more than they thought they could. Or maybe one of their clients got like super famous and now they're really busy with that client. They don't have much time for other clients. And it could just be because you don't work together. I mean, yeah. my, my first agent I only had for two years and then I could see that he stopped sending things out with the same enthusiasm he did. And we just had a conversation and part of company. Yeah, I've seen, I've worked with a lot of authors who had some nightmare agents, too, who, you know, one in particular that comes to mind was taking, the guy was taking on her work and uh, just not submitting it at all, you know. He was just putting it, basically putting it in a drawer and saying, yeah, I'm working on it, you know, and it just, that's miserable. Yeah. I don't understand because the agent doesn't make any money. <laughs> Uh -oh. something sales. Uh -oh. If you're not going to send it out, why? I mean, yeah. I understand getting overwhelmed with things because I do. You know, I get behind mm. on deadlines and other stuff. But yeah, you know, you hear all the time that no agent is better than a bad agent, and it's really true. Mm -hmm. I agree. Um, with the and in the in the publishing industry, I think no anything is better than a bad anything. Really, you know. <laughs> no, it's true. Do you find that you're having to do more publicity and marketing of yourself now than you used to when you first started? Yeah, you know, I probably should have back back then. Um, certainly around like the early 2000s when uh, I started publishing mm -hmm. with my leisure books, I just I still was of the, the belief that publishers, you know, they will go ahead and promote it now. And, uh, you know, I got through three books and the third of it, you know, the well, in the second one, the sales weren't so good. So I tried really hard to promote the third one and just didn't I didn't have enough time, didn't know how to do it. There weren't quite the same venues that there are now. Um, so, yeah, I still find myself doing it to a certain degree. More, well, a lot more than I thought I would. And I have no clue if any of it works. Nobody really does. Um, so, you know, I usually tell people do what you can, uh, but don't kill yourself either to do it because you don't know what'll work or doesn't work and to think of self-promotion too is like a you, if you think of promoting just one product you're doing it wrong you got to keep promoting yourself as a writer and everything as you go maybe emphasizing a new thing coming out but overall you know it's it, it builds over time you know it's one yeah. reader at a time you know yeah. what, you, uh, sorry oh no go ahead Okay, I was I gonna say, what, what venue do you find is the best for, for promoting yourself? Do you, or do you think you need to go across all these different boards and places? That's a really good question. I mean, I was on Facebook mostly, even though I had Twitter and Instagram. And I only do three because I've, I've read many places, three is about as much as anybody can handle with everything else. And I think at least for me, that's true. Mm -hmm. Um but I had heard that there was a stronger horror community on Twitter. Uh, actually, my uh, Flame Tree Press put out a little, like a press, yeah. like a, here's how to promote your book package. And that was one of the things they said on there. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll try to get a little more 
uh, active on Twitter and see what I think. Because for years I couldn't figure out how to read Twitter. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I can read message boards. I understood those really well, and that's how Facebook worked. But but as time went on, I got better at it. Now it's where I spend most of my time. I don't know if it's any more effective by any means in terms of actually selling books. I mean, even if people like your tweets, it doesn't mean they automatically go read a book of yours. Uh, go buy it. So yeah, I don't know. I just do what I can. You know, I do I do those three social media things. I do a newsletter. I do a blog, and I do my my videos on YouTube. And I'll go to conventions when I can. I mean, StokerCon was my first one in a long time. Or otherwise, I've been doing. You know, I, I say yes to all kinds of online things because it's easy for me to sit in front of my computer and just. Yeah. Talk to Everybody learned how to do that during the, the pandemic, which is at least one good thing that came out of it. Mm-hmm. We're all really good at figuring out how to do stuff virtually now. Mm-hmm. So I just exactly. do all those things and hope for the best. And I try really hard not to look at sales. And I'm not a numbers guy anyway. I couldn't figure out anything from it if I wanted. Um, so, you know, I'll sometimes see like a, on Amazon, I'll look and I'll see a book has gone up or down and I don't know what it means. So try not to worry about it too much. But I have that luxury. <laughs> I have a day job. I don't have to try to survive off of my writing yeah, yeah. Uh, it's part of why i did it but the other part was to have benefits since i live in america <laughs> yeah <laughs> i have those but yeah if i had to live off my writing it'd be different i'd be like trying to figure out every single little little penny mm-hmm. something tells me you could live off your writing if you chose to you just like to teach <laughs> well that's, that's true too i mean it's a lot of i would hate to have to just do one thing i remember when i was yeah. a writer's group with uh fantasy author named Dennis L. McKernan, you know, really great fantasy author. He was my mentor. Mm-hmm. You know, I, he helped me get my, well, he didn't help me. He introduced me to his agent. His agent took me on. So he helped in that sense. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when the agent was shopping my first book around, Dennis was like, oh, you know, in two or three years, you'll have, you know, one or two books out and you can stop teaching. And it's just, my heart seized up. And I'm like, why would I ever want to do that? Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, at this point, I'm looking forward to retirement from my school, but I don't know if I'll ever stop. Yeah. Yeah, I think somebody. I mean, with most teachers, really good teachers, it's kind of a natural penchant, anyway. You know, I know a lot of people who aren't actually teachers who are teachers. You know, I mean, Lansdale comes to mind as being the penultimate teacher. You know, um, as as just like a direct extension of his uh, persona as storyteller, really. You know, but, um, so yeah, some people I think that's really in them, don't you think? I think so. I mean, I spent just as much time in my classes growing up observing how each teacher taught because I was fascinated by the different ways they would do things than yeah. I did the, the subjects they were teaching. So, yeah, yeah, I think I, uh, I started, like I said, as an acting major, but I switched in the first semester mm. to yeah. theater education because I just, you know, they told us if you weren't willing to sacrifice everything to be an actor, you need to do something else because that's how hard the life is. Uh-huh. And I turned that question around to what could I, what would I sacrifice anything for? It turned out to be writing. It was just so natural yeah. to me, it occur to me. But yeah, I'd, I'd make any sacrifice for my yeah. writing. I transitioned from computer science to English. It wasn't, it wasn't a wise financial decision. <laughs> <laughs> But I've had lots of students come back over the years, take creative writing classes because, you know, mm-hmm. the stuff they're doing isn't feeding their soul. Um, I was uh, and this is, you know, no, no shade on any of us. 
but when I, when I first started college, um, I think I, w- I had a ninth grade education, not even that, and I'd been adrift for several years. Started community college, and the first thing I did was register for a um, creative writing class. And I was horrified to find that I was the only person in the class that still didn't have any gray in their hair. Um, <laughs> like me, and the only person who was younger than me in the class was the instructor, you know? <laughs> right. The instructor was like thanking God you came along because it's exactly. always to have at least a few. I'd rather have a class full, creative writing class, you know, full of older people than I would younger yeah. people. But yeah. the best is a mix. The best is a mix. Mm. Um, and yeah, but just when you're when you're younger, older people tend to horrify you. <laughs> they did me. I don't know if they did. I, I grew up around relatives that were older, so that really didn't. I <laughs> yeah. don't think that was a thing. More intimidated to like talk around them because I always felt like they knew so much more than I did. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Have you had anyone in your creative writing class that's gone on to be really famous? You don't have to name names, but. Yeah, I've had a couple people that have, have gone on to do pretty well. But, you know, it has nothing to do with me because it's just like one or two classes they might take. It has everything to do. The, one of my students, what's her last name? First name's Mindy. She writes a uh, young adult. And uh, I remember we were sitting around at some, uh, it was a local event. And we were sitting at a table and she was telling me, she's talking about tie-ins. And she's like, oh, yeah, there's this actor who wants to write a young adult book. And I'm not sure I want to do it you know, with him because they're only going to pay me $10,000. And I looked at her and she said, well, you don't understand. For YA, that's not very much. And I'm like, I am in the wrong damn field. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's why so many people write YA. <laughs> so I wish I could remember her name. I feel so awful. Mindy Arnett, that's her name. Sometimes when I'm older, my memory is like I have to look to the side instead of yeah. directly at what I'm trying to get, and then the name's just there. That's <laughs> what I did. I'm glad my, my brain coughed it up. Yeah, she's a yeah, wonderful Mindy's spelled with two E's, M-I-N-D-E-E. And then Arnett's just the way you would normally say it. Her books are really good. You should check them out, everybody out there. I do like YA. I was working in a library in a secondary school until about a year ago, and I used to buy in a lot of YA because there wasn't much in there. It was all geared towards the younger teens. I mean, our secondary schools go up to 16 and then they go on to college. So I was trying to get some for the older group and I was buying in indie stuff <laughs> and, and the horror because there wasn't a horror section and it was allowing me to actually read it. It's a perk of the job effectively so I could read a lot of the YA that came in and uh, it's it's really good and I I don't like it when you see it. Sometimes people look down on it as though it's an easy thing to do. I don't think it is that easy. Mm-mm. No. Yeah, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. Yeah. yeah. The ones I don't like is where you get you do get some YA where they spend a lot of time rolling their eyes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, the people that do roll their eyes a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Or fluttering, their eyelids, the hearts are pounding. Yeah, okay. Right, right. But you do, you do get some good writers in there. So mm-hmm. I managed to get some. I mean, I bought Jonathan Mabry's um, Rotten Ruins series mm-hmm. in, and one Love student left and took them with her, so I had to get them back again. <laughs> uh, Daniel Krause's Rotters, I got in the Gwendolyn Keist's Rust Maidens. So I got a few in there. And yes, I did put fourteen plus guidance and got permission for younger readers if they wanted to. So 
So I, I thought I was being a bit subversive. <laughs> and then I left. <laughs> I do miss reading the YA, though. I, I should go back to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking of writing a, a middle grade novel, which I did. And it's uh, out at a publisher and it's past the first reader. So we'll see. But I started reading a lot of, I think it's K.R. Alexander. Um, I was just looking around for somebody who had written some books and got some good reviews. And I just I just picked him at random. And the books were really good. And I'm like, oh, my God, this reads like something I would have written because he has all the kinds of things in it that I would have done. So I read like all 10 of his books, one right after the other. So I would recommend those to anybody who wants to try some. Caesar's good too. Adam Caesar, his clown in the cornfield oh, books yeah. are really good. I got good. that in the library as well with a with a, a yeah. guide on it, and one kid <laughs> wanted to read it, but he was too young, and it, it was one of those that has the slasher feel to it. And younger kids, for them, yeah. horror has to be slasher, otherwise it's not horror. You keep coming into the library and looking at it and sort of flicking through, and I said, "Got you? No, you purge it? No, I've forgotten." <laughs> so I left, and he still hadn't read it, but it's there on the library shelves. <laughs> um, I was I like uh, um, everybody has everybody has a different definition of what YA really is anymore. Um, it's kind of in a big transition, um, and I kind of like what Adam told me, Adam Caesar about Harper Teen. Is their definition of YA is is it interesting to young adults? And that's essentially the whole freaking definition otherwise the sky's the limit on what they will allow you to do and you know to a degree but i found that difficult when you're trying to buy in books for the school and say ya and then one publisher would say oh that's from 11 or well say 12 plus and others Uh say oh it's 14 plus and then i'd get the book in and have a read and then Put some guidance on it we'd never stop people reading them we just need parental permission in some cases I'd find that despite them saying, um, you know, they might let their kids play these 18 rated video games or something. If you gave them a book with one swear word or or whatever in it, they'd come back at you. So you had to have that little backup and get permission for them to read it. Which is more than we could say. And when I was a kid, you couldn't uh, you couldn't get it book from a school library that had a swear word in it you know <laughs> or i mean you know some you know twain people like that you know would have a few minor swear words in those but yeah not a lot we didn't have you know yeah. back back then ya was uh jack london you know <laughs> yeah yeah i would just uh i wouldn't get things out of the school library so much i just get them Mm-mm. from the public library where i could they didn't care if I checked out an interview with the vampire when I was in fifth grade. Yeah. No, whatever. Exactly. They didn't care. Or if they or if they did, my dad was there. He's just like Yeah. There and he would put it on his card if he had to. And I was yeah, yeah my parents didn't censor much at all. They let me just kinda the only thing they didn't want me to watch was um the soap, the T V series soap when it came out. <laughs> it was gonna have adult themes, which it did. But then I just started yeah. sneaking it and they didn't care. Yeah. And they just let me watch it. Yeah. That's the thing about our age group is the fact that, that, that there wasn't YA around. We went, went straight from, you know, reading things like uh, 
I don't know, maybe Lord of the Rings straight onto adult books. There wasn't that yeah. step in between. So we maybe would have read things that were considered like unsuitable at the time. But mm-hmm. we're all still here and we're not turned into monsters yet. So. <laughs> no. no, I think personally, I think Stephen King saved me because I don't know. He's, you know, my dad had a shelf full of Stephen King and I used it. I thought I was sneaking you know, starting about 11, I'd sneak in there and steal a book off his shelf and read it in bed at night when I thought everybody was asleep. Um, he knew it all along. He didn't care. You know, if you're if you're interested and you can read at that level, then do it. You know, but uh, yeah, that was it. That was how we access stuff like that back then or the library, like you said, you know, but um like Bev said, it's just a, a transition. You you kind of transition from childhood to adulthood in the reading world back then, you know. Mm-hmm. So. Okay, going back to your own work, then you've published yeah. a lot. Tim, what piece of which is the piece of work that means the most to you out of everything you've done? I wrote um when I was like twenty eight or twenty nine. I wrote a short story called Mister Punch. And I wrote it for an anthology that Zebra Books put out called Youngblood. And the, the conceit of the anthology was that all the stories had to be written by the author before the age of 30. Um, didn't matter what age they were now or even if they were dead. So the, which, that's how they got Edgar Allan Poe and Stephen King and <laughs> Ramsey Campbell in there. They just you know picked stuff when they were young. But everybody else were new writers. Um, when I wrote that, it was the first one that I wrote that was like, a real, a really a Tim Wagner story in the sense that I, it was mine. It was my voice. And years later, I was on doing a writer's workshop and Gary Bronbeck was there and uh, Charles Coleman Finley, who was recently up until recently was the editor of fantasy and science fiction. And somebody asked us, when did we know that our writing had gone from like one level to like a professional level? And we had not talked about this before, but we told the same story. We were all writing a short story about two thirds of the way through. We realized how good it was and terrified we stopped because we were afraid we were going to screw it up. And then each of us went back to it and finished it. And it became our first professionally published story. We'd had small press publications before that. And so that one, because of the experience that I went through um, and the fact that for me, it's kind of like was like a watershed moment. I always, you know, think of that one most fondly, I guess. Oh, sorry. Oh, I was... also, my my uh, writers group wanted me to change the ending because it was so surreal and strange. And uh, so did the guy. Which it was my crit partner that we would exchange things through mail. And I was like, to hell with all you people. <laughs> I'm keeping it exactly the way I want. And then when it got published, I was like, yes. So that that's another reason why I stuck to my guns, which is good. What's your view on beta readers then as well? If, if people advise you, you know, they oh, they think the ending should be changed or do you have people reading your work at all? No, I haven't had anybody read my work for almost 25 years at this point. Last time I was in a writer's group. I mean, I have an agent, I have editors, and uh, that's yeah. about all I do. Sometimes I ask my wife, especially if there's a passage I don't, I'm not sure about. Um, she used to be an EMT, too, so a paramedic, so I can ask her all these medical questions, or basic ones about injuries and stuff, so I make sure I get those right. So I'll ask her about that. But mostly I just at this point just write it on my own if i ever have something where i'm really unsure you know i know that there are people i could go to and ask and i would yeah, so when you when you with that story that you were just talking about in a way that marks the moment when you had confidence 
in your own writing. Right. Is is that what you think most people need to find that point where they have the confidence in their writing that they can carry on without thinking that they need to show other people their work? Maybe. I mean, but my 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 mentor, Dennis, he always had people, uh, you know, do feedback for him. Um, so it really just kind of depends on what you need as, as oh. part of your creative process. But I but seeing so many manuscripts over the years, I can tell from the first couple words whether somebody has confidence in their writing or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and often that's what that's what makes the difference. Even if the story is just okay, if you can tell it in a way that you seem confident, readers will follow you. And if the story is the idea and the characters and everything else is brilliant, but you lack confidence in your own writing, I think the opposite happens. It's harder for people mm-hmm. to go through, uh, to get through your story. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you could try to fake the confidence. In one mm-hmm. of his uh, his Make Good Art speech, Neil Gaiman says, you know, basically just pretend you're somebody who could do it and then do it. Yeah. If nothing else. And Yeah. So if you can fake confidence, that's it, still confidence, you know, eventually, uh, somehow. But I do think it's a pretty important thing. But like I said earlier, too, I think everything I write is terrible. So <laughs> you know, yeah. being a writer is this weird thing about having you know, all the confidence in the world and thinking you're a genius while at the same time lacking confidence and thinking your writing's horrible. Mm-hmm. I don't really know how people negotiate it. I do it. I'm just not always quite sure how I do it. Just tell myself those voices lie, I guess. Yeah. I See, mine is kind of a combo of me thinking – I'm brilliant while I'm writing something and then somebody else saying, oh, this is brilliant. And me thinking, are you kidding? That sucks. <laughs> the transition from, you know, reception to <laughs> perception. Well, you know, and if this far in my career, I can look back at stuff I've already done, which helps. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. uh, I have this in my office is where I have my author copies and then all the extra copies that I have. But I could just turn in my chair and look at them. Um, I try not to go back and read them because when I do, I'm like, oh, my God, I can't imagine writing this today. This is so much better than what I can do today. So I try not <laughs> to look at it too much you know, and hope I'm not on the downhill slide somewhere. But it does help. I mean, because I know that because no, I remember all the doubts I had when I was writing all these things. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, they may not be world masterpieces or anything. They may not last. But editors and readers found them OK. You know, so there's a good chance the next thing I do, they'll find OK, too. And that's what, yeah, what I was going to say. I'm thinking of uh, the books I read. First books I read by you were either the Necropolis series or the Shadow Watch. Um, those are, you know, both urban fantasy series, um, urban horror fantasy, I would say. Uh, but, yeah, not high art, but... Definitely ridiculously fun reads, you know, um, and I feel like they were really fun to write, too. You know, they sure were. Yeah. That's the, yeah. that was the main thing I wanted to get through with it was just, you know, have books that are just fun from start to finish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know with me, if I'm not enjoying what I'm writing, I can't write. You know, it's just not. You know, I've had things I was in, invited to that I wasn't enjoying and backed out of and things that I've taken on myself and just went, eh, I just lost this. I don't like it, you know, so. Plus, uh, I feel, and this was what I was getting around to asking, um, that if the author enjoys what he's writing or she's writing, um, 
I, as a reader, generally enjoy it more, too. Yeah, I, I don't think you can always tell because, you know, yeah. I feel something. I know what my emotional state was like at the time. And right. people who read it, they don't get that at all. I mean, it's still, you know, they think it's just a fine story. And I'm like, oh, you know, I was going through something pretty awful then. And I hated mm-hmm. this thing. I barely finished it. And I <laughs> wouldn't have sent it in except I promised I would. And so mm. I don't know if the, the writer's feelings about their work as they produce it or even after necessarily have anything to do with how the work's perceived. At least after a certain mm-hmm. point, and you learn enough craft. Okay, we can't have three awkward silences. That was our <laughs> second one. So, for <laughs> <laughs> someone else to speak, because I, I keep thinking, well, I'm, I'm asking too many or talking too much. But We Will Rise is a book you've got coming out in July. Yep. Thank you, Press. Um, and as you see, you've got it's. The, the synopsis might say it was malign spirits um, killed to add to their ranks uh, and, you know, to, you kill people. But it, it's made me think that it's a bit like vampires with Bev. If both, side, if both sides actually kill everybody, then they'll end up bringing about their own downfall. So do you think about that? when you? How do you get the balance when you write these stories? Because if you've got all these malignant forces coming along to kill humans, adds to their ranks what happens when you've killed everybody that's a good question and i can't tell you because that's part of the book <laughs> there's a reason yeah there's a reason why it's happening one of the things the tropes i've always had trouble with are ghost stories because it's like what can a ghost do to you i mean it, it just it could scare you and if it can manipulate physical reality and kill you you just become a ghost too because you know there's life after death um it just they just don't seem to be very scary so i thought i would write a a ghost apocalypse book instead of a zombie apocalypse and then come up with a reason why it was all happening and well, why are the ghosts all coming back now why are they killing people um so yeah it's all part of the the book but my heroes don't find that out until closer to the end well that is one that i'm gonna get <laughs> yes we do. <laughs> i hope you enjoy it different yeah different. <laughs> so, when your vampires kill everybody how are you going to keep them alive well that's because my, my, my vampires, they're a very select bunch and they're very select about how they feed. So the chances of them killing everybody in the world are very slim indeed. <laughs> I liked what they did in this strain. Um, Justin Cronin, they farmed us. Yeah. Oh, I that. There's, also, <laughs> there's a YA book. Um, I, can't, it's called, I think it's called Pigs or something. Mark Gifford, something like that, and they actually farm humans, and that is quite a gruesome read for for youngsters. But it's, who knows, it's still very good. I, I like that idea of humans being farmed because it's a bit of a taste of your own medicine. Put them in their place. I think I might do it where if the vampires are so hungry and so addicted, they would just kill everybody and then just die out. It's just what they do. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's the big yeah. cycle that happens once they show up. They're like cicadas or whatever. Maybe they'll either die or maybe some of them will go into hibernation. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I think like, uh, like dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this this train was Del Toro and Hogan, not uh, mm-hmm. Justice Cr- Justin Cronin. He did the passage. Right. Sorry. I just don't yeah, want to misbehave. The they had like vampire cops, basically, that patrolled. Yeah. What the other vampires did, which makes sense. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, who else was it? Um, uh, Matheson did it with I Am Legend, kind of. Yeah, yeah and I always wondered how those vampires survived because there was nobody around. He was yeah, the last one, wasn't he? Well, the last human at the end, and then they yep. executed him, I think. Spoilers. <laughs> they, changed, they changed it for the film, haven't they? I think someone said they're doing another one. Yep. yep, and somehow Will Smith's character is supposed to come back, and I don't know how. They said they got a way to do it, but. Yeah, we'll interesting. It was a dream. <laughs> <laughs> they were really werewolves all along. <laughs> Well, uh, Mr. Wagner, um, we're running out of time. Do you have uh, some uh, anything else you want to cover before we hang this thing up? I feel like we didn't talk about the workbook much, but I feel like we covered a lot of the, you know, the salient points between the workbook and the and the um, writing in the dark initial book. Um, I, wrote, I wrote the workbook only because people told me how much they enjoyed the exercises in the first book. Because I, I didn't think I could ever write another, because what else would I have to say after this point? Maybe in another 10 or 20 years if I learn more. Yeah. But then I thought, well, maybe yeah. if I did an entire workbook of exercises, which I thought would be really hard to make up. And some, sometimes I struggle, but mostly it wasn't too hard. And I, I tried to make it, too, so that if somebody had never read Writing in the Dark, they could still read the workbook. You know, I didn't cover the same material in the same same depth, but I made sure that every the concepts were still in there so that it could you know be independent of writing in the dark. And so we'll see. I've had a few people that have started uh, you got advanced copies of the workbook and started the exercises. They seem to think they're pretty useful. So mm-hmm. I'm hoping I'll find out here in a couple months. And you pulled in some of the uh, kind of uh, st- there's there are structural similarities in a way to. Uh, sorry writing in the dark it's structured exactly the same way same chapters and the same like you said earlier i have uh you know i had people offer exercises or writing advice this time they were only just writers last time i also had editors and agents respond but for craft stuff i thought i should only ask writers so um and yeah and i think you know once again you've done a stellar job with it i'm probably i have not done the exercises but i have read through because i you know didn't want to speak out of turn about something i hadn't actually seen um and yeah this is this is a perfect companion and it's also a perfect standalone i think if someone just wants to work out this is a great place to great place to do it and learn something well good uh, you know, and it's you can use the exercises any way you want. You can read them, you can do them, you can read them and do them later. You know, whatever. It's however you want to use it. Mm-hmm. it doesn't. I think yeah. a lot of people shy away from a workbook because they feel like they have to fill out every little thing, and I don't do that. I just go through it, and uh-huh. read it, think about the exercises, and some some I'll do, some I won't. So, yeah, yep. I, I tried to make it so that anybody could use it in any way they wanted to. Yeah. Yep. And uh, that's what makes you a good teacher, sir. Um, Bev, Steph, anything else? No, I just really no. enjoyed talking. Yeah. Um, fantastic episode. It is always a pleasure to talk to you, Tim. Um, so let's do it again next week. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe yeah. not quite soon, but I'd love to do it again yeah. sometime. 
to have to ask Kev Harrison about that one of these days. He's about to have his third appearance. <laughs> but it'll be his first appearance. <laughs> um, but, yeah, uh, we really appreciate having you. Um, love to have you again soon. Um, writing in the Dark, the workbook, out in a week. Um, writing in the Dark, out now. You should get both of those books. Um, and also note Raw Dog Screaming Crest, the publisher. Um, also, they also are going to be releasing writing poetry in the dark pretty soon by uh stephanie witovich i always get her yeah so so yeah watch out for that one too because uh she's also awesome um thank you tim thanks so much for having me i had a great time thank you have a good day everybody or night night. bye bye